the way to get someone to try your product once is to, to try to stand out and be indifferent, not trying to sell yourself as being best. Hey, my name is Felix Tian. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why it's important to invest in your education, why you do not need the best product, you just need to have a different product, and how to network with successful brands and get them to give you advice. Today, I'm joined by Gamal Kotner from Fresh Heritage. Fresh Heritage sells high-quality grooming products for men of color who care about how they look and feel and was started in 2017 and based out of Atlanta, Georgia, and is a multi-six-figure brand. Welcome, Gamal. Hey, man. What's going on? What's going on, man? So yeah, this whole idea behind your business all started with you buying woman products. Tell us that story. Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing, but I started growing my beard right after I I um, left corporate America just as a way to um, hone that new entrepreneurship identity and to rebel a bit because mm-hmm. I used to always have a clean, have a clean shaven face, but I couldn't find anything specifically for like my coarse and curly hair texture. And so the, a lot of the products on the market had high alcohol base, which was horrible for my hair, it just made my beard really itchy and scratchy. And so the best solution I found were high quality natural hair care products for black women or natural women. And so I was doing that for a while. And one day I was on an island target picking up some really cool um, pink bottles of hair care products. And I ran into a gym buddy. And in that moment on the aisle, I felt like almost guilty, like I was buying tampons for a girlfriend or something like I had to explain myself. And I realized that I shouldn't feel like that. And the second aha moment in the same aisle is that I realized he was there buying female products to groom himself too and he was also a person of color so the idea for this brand um kind of started there so you set out to be an entrepreneur before knowing exactly what product or business you'd be in at that time or did you already have some kind of business that you had started previously yeah great question so i've i was already in business for a while i left corporate america in 2013 i learned the skill of facebook advertising and I, prior to that, I was trying stuff part-time, which I recommend everyone do. Don't fully jump into it until your side gig is um, kind of consistent. And um, I hired a mentor that taught me the Facebook ads. And in the first 90 days, I made $107,000 of working with them. And shortly after that, I left corporate America. And I was essentially an outsourced digital advertiser for other brands. So I was helping brands scale. Uh, through my knowledge of Facebook ads and advertising. But I got tired of making other people money and wanted to create something for my own, but I just didn't have a really good idea to launch it. And so I had that aha moment that I'm like, huh, I know how to market. Maybe this is a product that I can sell to people because I have a need. So now let me do the research to see if other people have this need too. Mm. So you you went to the, the the process of hiring a mentor to learn uh, Facebook ads at that time. What made you decide to to do that? Because I think a lot of people, when they want to learn a new skill, want to become an entrepreneur, want to you know learn something like Facebook ads, they look for all these kind of free resources, free resources. But you went ahead and paid for a mentor. What was the thought process behind that? Yeah, um, and I'll give you both perspectives because now I actually um, also coach people on how to learn ads for their e-commerce brands. So I've got full perspective on it. And what I realized at the time was I was trying to do a business before my mentor. And in two years, that business probably generated $8,000, not a whole lot of money. 
and my first 90 days, I had a, a great growth path. And I realized that the free information out there is piecemeal. So like, take, for example, if you go on YouTube and you watch Guy A's tactics on doing something, but he doesn't give you the whole thing. And you've got to go to person B's other tactic to try to fill the gap. That's going to give you a really bad recipe. Like if you have ever tried grilling meat and you, one person says grill it for a short amount of time on a high temperature. The other person says grill it on a low temperature for a long amount of time. You can't mix the two things. You're going to come out with a crappy product. And so that's what I was doing. I was piecemealing information, getting bits and pieces from everyone. And when I put it together, I just wasn't getting the traction I needed. So I decided to invest in myself and find someone who could give me like the full the full secret, the full process. And that really made a big difference in what I was able to produce. So I'm a big believer in just like paying to get mentorship or just learning as much as possible. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about paying someone to create the curriculum for you. And there's a lot of free content. You can probably learn a lot of pretty much everything out there that is for free, but the point that the hard part is piecing the together the right things like you're saying. So how do you find what's your suggestion to someone or maybe what's what was your approach to finding a mentor? Like how does someone out there know that they are choosing someone that is actually going to be a good fit, that is truly knowledgeable versus someone that is, you know, quote unquote just like a guru that is, you know, selling information that is not exactly relevant or helpful. I know, man. This guru craze is just ridiculous. And so um, there's a lot of wrong information out there. So I would recommend anyone to just take their time with people and not rush into any decisions like that. Um, get to know the person outside of just, you know, a flashy Lamborghini or fancy suit. Um, and really just get to know and think through the person's character. And also one big thing for me when I make decisions on who I invest with now to like help me is they have to be a practitioner. I don't want someone teaching me theory. I want someone who's actually lived and done it and been in the trenches and is sharing their process because I'm buying um, help, not really to learn some secret thing, but just to like speed up my learning curve. Time and energy is like pretty much the only thing we all have consistently. And so I know if I'm going to out compete with uh, other brands or get ahead, I need to be uh, maximizing my time. And so what will take me a year to figure out on my own, I could find someone who's figured it out and working with them would probably allow me to do it in a matter of weeks or at least a few months. And so that's like what I look at. At that time, I found someone who was like me and who has accomplished um, what I'd like to accomplish and who was um, very similar. And I knew that he had learned all this stuff over the past years and that could speed up my learning curve. And that's the same advice I give for people now. Makes sense. Okay, so you went through this process of hiring a mentor. You sped up the the learning process for for Facebook ads. You learned Facebook ads. You were working with. Uh, Sound like you were running kind of your your own agency at the time, helping other people scale up their business. Were you on a lookout at that point to start your own business? By the time you just you had this kind of intuition that 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 you know birthed Fresh Heritage, or like what made you decide to switch from offering services to building your own products? Yeah. Um, you know, I just really, I was, I was doing work on a performance space. So I essentially, I wouldn't get paid a flat upfront retainer initially. I was just almost getting like affiliate sales for every product I sell. I would get X and it was great, but I had to start over every single month. Um, I wasn't building a brand. I didn't have, no one knew who I was. I was just like a nerd behind the computer screen. And so 
um, when months were slow, all of the work that I've done before that didn't matter. And so I didn't like feeling like that. And so um, I was essentially almost doing drop shipping in that early part. And then I, I did an agency stuff to have retainer work, but I still just didn't feel like I was really building my own thing. I always felt like I was building something for someone else. And so this building my own brand provided me the opportunity to create a dream from scratch and to grow it into something that just came from my brain. And that was really attractive to me versus just helping someone else build their dream. Got it. So what were the the most immediate new skills that you had to acquire to begin building your own brand? Yeah, so um, I, I, I'm a big nerd in um, like behavioral economics and human psychology, pretty much figuring out why people do things. Um, what triggers people and what I learned um, was night and day to what I thought I knew. And it's probably night and day to what most people think they know. Um, that's one of the core things I teach when I start um, working with a new founder. So that was one thing. And I was fairly knowledgeable at marketing, but I needed to really understand the operations side or like the product development side. I knew nothing about that. And I thought it was a lot easier <laughs> than it was until I actually started bringing this thing to life. So so, um, I've worked with the team over at Founder Magazine. They've got a program that I bought into that really helped me understand other elements of marketing and really understand like the operations part of it. And I really just did the same thing this time. I reached out to brands who were local and um, just started getting advice from them and help from them on like product development, how to scale organizationally, um, selecting vendors, supply chain, cash flow, all that stuff was um, brand new to me that I had to figure out. Yeah, I like that you take this approach of wanting to learn something and then you go find people that already have the experience and learning, like practitioners and learning directly from them. So this approach of finding local brands and getting advice from them, it don't, I think it's to a lot of people that seems kind of daunting, right? Like why would some, why would a brand listen to someone that has nothing right now? So what was your approach? How were you able to get them to talk to you and give you advice? Yeah, um, you'll be surprised. Um, well, there are two ways. Some just had set um, coaching programs or courses that I can just purchase and buy their mentorship that way. That was really easy. But some of the ones that didn't have a financial transaction behind it, you'd be really surprised at who these quote unquote successful people, who they are and what they value. Oftentimes, you know, with everything, you should always think about reciprocity, one of those behavioral economics principles, and just um, you get what you give. And so you should lead with give. And so you'll be surprised at like these quote unquote successful people at how valuable um, you can be to them by simply just giving them their time or offering help in an area that you're an expert at that they weren't. So in my case, I had a large, um, a pretty deep background in digital marketing. And I know that's an area that a lot of people don't really understand. So for people with heavy product development background, I was able to immediately add value to them and give them some social media or Facebook ad strategies that they could implement in their business. And so uh, we just started a reciprocal relationship that way. But it doesn't even have to be a hard skill like that. It could just be time, doing research, um, just showing up, helping at trade shows. It can be a lot of different things where you could be valuable to an established business owner. Mm. So what's that first interaction like to get them? Because I'm sure that people will reach out to them all the time to get kind of advice. What was that first interaction like with a brand that, or a mentor that you want to connect with to make sure that you stand out and you lead with value first? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's intentional and it, it changes um, from brand to brand. 
or from situation to situation. But I oftentimes as just a founder at the start of the year, I make a list of like dream people that if these people were in my sphere of influence or I built a relationship with them, I think they could bring either me and my brand like to the next level and I become intentional about connecting with them. So maybe I see that they're speaking at a conference, I'll show up there and do something meaningful to them. Um, someone did that to me, which was very, um, which was like just blew me away. This video creator, I went and I spoke somewhere and I was speaking about scaling with ads and he was an up and coming video creative and he just um, filmed me without me asking. And by the end of my talk and me answering questions, he had edited the video real quickly on his laptop and airdropped me the file and said, hey, I love your work. I follow you on Instagram. I'd love to do more work with you. Here's something that I could add to what you're already doing. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like This is initiative. This is like value add. And I saw that he was really strategic and a hustler about it. So that was one example where someone did the reciprocity to me and it worked out really well. I ended up starting a relationship with them and including him in a lot of the projects I did moving forward. Yeah, I like how this example you gave the the the, the person actually went and did the work first. I think the uh, kind of trap that a lot of people get themselves into is that they'll reach out to someone that's in their dream kind of influencer list and then ask them, "Hey, how can I help you?" But by asking, you're kind of like adding more work onto the plate of the person that you mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. to help. Uh, rather than the approach that worked for you, which was that they just went out and did the work and then presented it to you so that it was as easy as you saying, yes, I want to continue working with you or not. It does not require you to brainstorm how they can help you. So I think that that's a, a good, a great example. So you mentioned that you had uh, so lots of years of experience in digital marketing. I think you mentioned you had seven years at the time, uh, by the time that, or seven years of, of experience now. And by the time you were ready to launch your brand, you brought all that experience with you. So tell us about that. So what were the first steps? Was it first to develop the product or to, to figure out how you would market this? Like what were the first steps towards actually building Fresh Heritage? Yeah, great question. So I adapt a principle um, from the startup technology world that um, works really well. And so part of the biggest mistakes I see um, e-com brand owners making is that they sell too soon. And I'll explain what that means. So I see people creating business plans about the perfect product, who they're going to sell it to, and they never speak to a customer. Or even worse, they tell their friends and family about it. And obviously, their friends and family are going to support them in their their initiative. And they launch, and it's an unvalidated product. That's a complete waste of time. And so what I did is I did the opposite. The first part of you launching your business is to actually try to get people to shoot down the idea. You actually operate in the negative. What you want is to have an idea of your head and to speak to people and let them think that you think your idea is a crappy idea. So, for example, if I wanted to create grooming products for black men, I started off by researching and speaking with black men who are my ideal customers. So, like speaking to friends and family, wrong wrong people to speak to because they don't know your customers' needs. And if they're an average nice person, they're not going to be real with you and tell you that's a crappy idea, nor do they know if that's a crappy idea. And so Never speak to friends and family about your idea. Only speak to your customers for validation. Um, so I spoke to the customers and I said, hey, I'm thinking about creating this product for black men with, the, with, um, with beards. I think, you know, I originally thought there was no products on the market. 
for us. But then I realized that black men don't need this thing and men of color are perfectly fine with everything on the market. So I'm actually going to stop this idea and then just shut up. And what I wanted to listen for was indifference, meaning people just didn't have a feeling towards it or people felt very strongly towards it. And they were like, no, actually don't stop because I'm trying to find products and I can't find anything. Like, what have you done so far? Like, how can I help you make that a reality? Because I'm struggling with that. And you want to create an opportunity for people to go against what you want them to think that you're working on. And when you have that kind of resistance and people are in support of your secret idea, then you know you have something. So that's the validation. And the second piece is um, the real way to validate a product is to get people to spend money and give you money, especially for a product that doesn't exist yet. So a lot of people use a crowdfunded method to raise capital, but I just really use it as a way to really validate my idea. And so I said, okay, I interviewed in person about 30 people. I sent out surveys to about three, 400 people, got their feedback, saw um, at a high level where all the problems were, created a, a product that addressed all the issues people had. And I said, all right, for three, 400 people, I heard you, I want to do something, but I need your help. If you're really serious about me, doing all of this work for you to make your life a better place. I need you to support me in advance so I could confirm these commitments. And I got a lot of pre-orders. Um, so that was what I did. And so I think that you should never, you should never um, create before you um, sell and you should never sell before you validate. And so validate, then sell, then create the product. Got it. Okay, so it starts with this this uh, validation phase where you're, you're you're talking to your ideal customers. You talked. You said you did thirty in person interviews and about three to four hundred surveys. How are you finding these ideal customers? Like, what were you doing to to connect with them? Yeah, so it's about assumptions, right? So it's like, all right, I have this problem. First of all, the best econ brands solve real problems, and so you need to be real honest with yourself and say, all right, no one needs a real cool widget. People need problem solved. So I have to think about my product in that. So I said, all right, this would solve a problem for people like X. Let me go speak to a variety of people like X and to see if it really solves a problem. And then I started realizing that in the 30 people I spoke to, 20 of them had a lot of similarities and they really were struggling to find something here. And they'd even spent money on trying to find solutions. So I figured that was like my hottest market. And in the online space, you actually don't need to be the best product. We actually grew from zero to 60K and did multiple six figures in our first year, not by trying to be the best product, but just trying to be different. I knew our product was going to be good, but every brand says we're the best product. No one is really saying, hey, we use crappy ingredients or, you know, we're probably not the, we'll probably don't put our customers first. Everyone is saying the same thing. We use the best ingredients, we're the best. So the results have to speak for themselves. You just want someone to try your product once. And so the way to get someone to try your product once is to, to try to stand out and be indifferent, not trying to sell yourself as being best. And so with those um, 20 people, I found a way that I could stand out by being different to those people who are really spending a lot of time and effort to try to solve that problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think this is a good point about how you don't need to be the best. You just need to be different. So how different are we talking about? What was your differentiator? Yeah, so for example, um, I realize that certain men within like certain profiles, professions, and um, education level and stuff like that, a large portion of them were using female products for natural uh, women to groom themselves. And I found out 
Why? Uh, because of a couple of like presumed benefits of using those products. But those men all would have rathered to find a product specifically for them with these same perceived benefits, but that didn't exist. What was a, what existed for men or they were trying to sell men on other benefits, which I found these people weren't interested in. So I just introduced a product to the market that um, one worked, but that's a given and you would figure that out once you try it, but had a different messaging. Like I wasn't trying to go down the left road with my messaging. I found out through research and speaking to people, not my friends, not my family, but actual customers. I found out that they were actually interested in trying to find something that went the right road. And that's how I positioned my product. Guys, you took like messaging or uh, I guess benefits that were in uh, women's products and positioned it or I guess targeted it at, at men? That's correct. And I realized um, that wasn't being done before in a way that men wanted to, in a, in a way that men were looking for solutions. Right. So the wrong approach or the approach that you would not recommend is to look for the benefits that are traditionally talked about in men's products and say that you did those better. Rather than doing that, you looked for a completely different message, talking about completely different benefits that were not put in front of the the target demographic that you're going after before. Yeah, that's where the real opportunity is. And the real opportunity is listening. So humans don't really know what they want, but if you are good about understanding that it'll make sense to you. So like when there's a famous quote that Henry Ford said, you know, if I would have asked people what they wanted before I launched Ford, they would have told me a faster horse. And he gave them a faster horse, but he gave them a faster horse that looked very different in the form of a car. And they're like, wait, wait, I can still go from point A to B more reliably, faster. Like, what's this thing? Let me try this out. And it's the same thing. So don't necessarily go out and really build a faster horse, but when you get the information, think through how you can take what customers are telling you they're trying to spend money on and do it in a uniquely different way that'll intrigue them and give them an opportunity to start your own community of people who are interested in solving that problem by the way your product solves the problem. Mm. So this all starts again with listening, like you're saying, and the approach that you take or you recommend that you've taken that you, you teach other entrepreneurs to take is that you you go out and you talk to your ideal customers, your your your, your uh, assumed per, your assumed target customers, and then you tell them, hey, I was going to start this product, I was going to create this product, but then I found out that it already exists and that there's actually no real need for it. And then use a way to hear their feedback. Is this, I think you put this in the pre-interview, is this your ugly baby syndrome test? Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's yeah. like using, using negative framing for the ugly baby. And the analogy that I created around this is that if you had an ugly baby, it would be impossible for you to realize that because you're so emotionally attached to your baby. So how would you figure out if your baby was actually ugly? And this analogy, like your business is your baby. People see how much hours you spend maxing out credit cards, doing crazy stuff to get this baby off the ground. So the people who love and care about you will definitely not be the right people to tell you that this is an ugly baby. So, But the good thing about a business is that you have an opportunity to fix your baby. It's not, some, it's not like a one-shot fix-all. Most businesses actually go through what the tech world creates as a pivot. And so I used a lot of their their lean startup strategies to implement in like a traditional e-commerce brand. And so just the same way that tech companies do a lot of research and then they hit the ground running and grow real fast, 
I know that if e-commerce brands take this kind of approach to what they're doing, once they find something that people want, they're going to create really hot demand and it can grow really fast as well. Mm. Now, when you go into this ugly baby syndrome testing, how much of a hypothesis do you have where do you try to go in with no kind of – because I guess when I say hypothesis, I mean like how do you know what you should be listening for? Yeah, great question. So um, before you try to validate, you should definitely have a hypothesis to work towards. You shouldn't just be wondering aimlessly to have people figure this out like, you know, Henry Ford – said, Hey, do you, what do you want? Do you want how do you want to improve this transportation? So you need to have like some hypothesis of a problem. So just start taking back. It's your own life. You know, the best problems are ones that you, you know, and you have a passion about. So take a look at your bank statements, where are you spending money? Take a look at what you're researching on YouTube. What do you, what interests you? And, you know, if you are interested in cars, don't think that you have to make a car. There's like a whole ecosystem of things related to the automobile industry from um, little gadgets, performance enhancements, cleaning tools, simple things. So just have a look at your life, um, where you spend your time, where you spend your money, your attention, and figure out what things in your life are kind of annoying that you wish people could fix or wish were different, or even better, what are the things that you just assume cannot be fixed? Those are the real opportunities. Those are like, that the gems hidden in plain sight. So for me, I just assumed all men, when they wanted to do this, they just bought women products. That's how you do it, right? But I realized in that embarrassing moment that it doesn't have to be that way. And so the kind of things, the routine things you do every single day, um, just kind of slow down your thought process and just realize, all right, why am I doing this? Do I have to drink from this water bottle? Do I have to do things this way? Do I need a book bag and a other bag? Like, is there a way to do things differently and just like have a good survey of your life and you'll be surprised at the many opportunities where you can solve a problem for yourself and then hopefully find millions of other people in the world who would like to solve that problem for you, uh, who would like to have that problem solved for them too through the product you could introduce. Mm. Now, have you had to turn down products after going through this or for this particular brand for, for Her- Fresh Heritage, have you had to make, uh, like, what kind of tweaks or pivots have you had to make based on the feedback that you're getting? Yeah, that's a really great question. The feedback loop doesn't stop when you launch. So you should always early on be in a a mode of, I'm not selling. Well, once you launch, you should sell, but you should also have a hat of research, product development, feedback loop. And so our initial version, we ended up tweaking it about four times um, just based on feedback from people. And, you know, there's another famous startup quote that if you are not completely embarrassed by the first version of your product, you waited too long to launch. Like, you know, I know it's your baby and you want it to be perfect when you launch the world. But the reality is all of the brands that you know now, they once were really crappy, way different versions of themselves when they first launched. And so the best way to figure that process out and to tweak it is to put it out in the market and let your actual customers tell you how they would like the product improved. You don't know how they would like it. Your family doesn't know. No one knows what your customers. So that's the fastest and best way to make improvements because you don't want to improve things that they don't even care about. Right? So you don't want to make wrong assumptions about that. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's a. I think that's actually a relief that you don't have to come up with the ideas in your own brain, and instead you should be a good detective and ask the right questions and hunt down <clears throat> the answers rather than try to, you know, kind of just wish it into existence into your into your creativity. So, can you give examples of pivots that you had to make, and what was like the feedback that got you to that drove you towards that that pivot? Um, so. One of the pivots that we had to make um, was around our aroma and our fragrance. We decided, like, what a lot of brands do in this industry is, like, the beauty space, they come out with multiple variations of aromas. And I knew I didn't want to be, because I didn't have a lot of experience with product development. So I chose to, instead of launching fast rapidly, to put all my eggs in one basket. Um, and to really spend all my marketing dollars on one product versus, let's say you have $10,000 to spend, I could spend ten grand on one thing, maximizing that exposure on ads versus launching 10 products and only spending $1,000 behind each product. And so that was my strategy. But to create one product that the majority of people would love is a very difficult thing. People have so many different preferences. And so one of the main things that went into the variations early on was um, trying to find something that a majority of people would like and putting it out there and getting feedback from people. Oh, this is, this is too musky. Oh, this is too fresh. Oh, this is too strong. Do you have anything lighter? Oh, you guys should come up with an unscented one. Oh, like, why do you ask that? Why would you like something unscented? Oh, because I work in a place where people are close to my face. And so I don't want this, or I have a favorite cologne, so I don't want it to overpower it. And so all this, all this feedback from customers came back and that allowed us to continue tweaking and tweaking our aroma. And so we found something that, you know, there was no indifference. People didn't complain about it anymore and people actually started liking it. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. So you mentioned to us that, and I think earlier in the podcast about how you went from zero to sixty thousand dollars in just your first ninety days, and it all came down to customer discovery. So what what is customer discovery to you? Yep. So customer discovery, figuring out where you're, figuring out who your target demographic is. I actually have a, a statement. It's called a three P statement that I um, I teach everyone to learn about their brand and to implement it. So it's um, person, the three, the three P is essentially uh, person, problem, and promise. So what person can you be meaningful to in their lives by solving a problem for them and making a big promise about that problem so that you can improve their lives? So person, problem, promise. And so I customer discovery is about figuring who that person is, what problem they have in their life that you can make better, and how you can launch a product in the marketplace that can give them a big promise about how you can improve that area of their life. Mm, can we get into how specific this is, how specific each of these things should be? So when it comes down to the person, how specific were you? Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of um, um, a kind of more general product that everyone should, could probably understand a little clearer because people may not be aware of like grooming needs for men of color. So um, someone I work with, was launching a fitness uh, company and they were trying to work with, um, they were trying to create a product that people could um, use at home to do at home workout routines. And they wanted to be meaningful to stay at home moms. Well, that person wasn't a stay at home mom. 
And that person didn't work out at home. That person worked out at the gym and they launched and the product didn't go anywhere. And so we went through this exercise about who they wanted to be meaningful to and the promise. And I'm like, all right, well, that promise could be meaningful to a stay at home mom. But I think the promise should be not that you can help them work out at home, but maybe something else. So go do your research. And what they found was that stay at home moms hated working out from home. That was the one time a day they got to actually get away from the kids, go have um, time for themselves and actually interact with people and um, people at the gym. So giving them an, giving them an idea to stay at home was something they absolutely hated. And you wouldn't realize that by talking to your friends and family because they're going to think, yeah, this is a good idea. You only know that by speaking to stay-at-home moms. And so what she did was she tweaked her promise. And so she made that instead of an at-home workout device, she made it available for people to use at the gym to further enhance their workouts. So she realized stay-at-home moms all wanted a certain physique after having kids. And so she created these workout um, um, apparatuses or devices that help them to get that desired physique much faster. So same person, uh, a different way of how you can deliver that promise, but um, and also a different prom pain point. So they did not have a pain of wanting to work out better at home. They had a pain of trying to get to the gym and maximize how they looked while they were there. Does that make sense? It does. Yep, makes sense. Okay. So once you are able to put down these three Ps, how does that translate into the kind of marketing and advertising that you're doing? Yeah. And so then that transition into your differentiation statement. So once you have those three things down, figure out a way where you can be different. Like that example, um, this helps stay, this helps moms with recently had babies to get back in that type of body they want to have while at the gym. And so then your marketing becomes real easy because you've done the time to talk to the customers and figure out what pain points they are, they have. And so people buy emotionally and then justify it logically. Well, technically they, they make a buying decision subconsciously based on like these life force eight things like extension of life, the desire to be, um, the, to be desired by the opposite sex. There's eight of them. And once one of those kick in the gear, it attaches an emotion to it, like love or like sexiness or whatever. And then um, you justify it logically. And so that really helps you translate into your marketing. So you don't lead by saying, hey, this is a strong band. You can, um, it can withstand all sorts of workouts. You would lead with the emotional side of things and letting them know you understand that this is their time away from the family and they should maximize it and get back to how they were looking prior to having these kids. So you really don't even sell any of the features of it. You just really sell the benefits of it. And that really helps translate into a really clear marketing campaign where any average person who knows Facebook ads with all of that information can really get successful results from a beginner Facebook ads campaign because you have a clear um, targeting, you have your audience down pack, you have messaging down pack. Um, and those are really the most important things in finding success with running ads. And you mentioned that there, you don't want to put the product, you don't want to advertise a product. You want to more, you want to tap into the emotional needs. You mentioned that there were, were eight emotional needs. Yeah. It's this thing called the life force eight. It's essentially, um, long research that's been conducted that, um, found out that the majority of decisions people make 
all tie back to these eight principles. And so there are things like extension of life, keeping up with the Joneses, superiority effect, like wanting to be known as and seen as an authority, um, the sexual desire from the opposite sex. So for example, if you are selling just regular clothes, a red dress, one way you can tap into life force eight is not by saying, hey, um, this is Pima cotton and it's red, buy it now. You can say stuff like, hey, this is this shade of red has been statistically proven to um, increase or to attract the opposite sex by 30% more. Or this type of cotton has maximum stretching capabilities. So it um, it hugs your curves the same way, wash after wash. Like tapping into really small things about that to just help go one layer deeper than features, but you go into emotional benefits that people don't even realize they're always going through life trying to go after those eight things with every decision they make. Got it. So it sounds like it stems all back to that kind of interview that you're doing with your target customer. So when you are doing this interview or you're asking them questions, are you looking to identify or see uh, a problem that is tied back to Life Force 8? Yeah, well, it's kind of the opposite way. All problems are tied back to Life Force 8. So when you identify the problem, you just need to do your understand it and realize, okay, this problem falls under these two or under these three. And the more your problem can hit, the more life force eights, the stronger of a problem you, um, the stronger of an opportunity you have to sell that to other people. Mm. So I, I want to really d- 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 dig in on this interview, this, this uh, conversation you're having with the customer, because it sounds like by doing this and doing this part right, a lot of your marketing kind of just works for you so when you are when you have when you or one of your students sits down to interview their target customer what questions should they be asking to figure out those two pieces the problem and the promise i think the best way to figure that out is to um, work on a problem that is dear to you so don't work on problems that you don't know it's just going to make this process a lot more difficult and so that's why i said the first part is starting to figure out where you spend your time, energy, resources, attention, and you'll have a better understanding of what the problem is. And so from that approach, you can interview your customers from a problem, from an approach like, hey, I thought this was important to me, but I realized um, no one else cares about it. What, you know, you're a mom, you're a stay-at-home mom too. What do you think about your gym activities? Or you're a man of color too. What do you think about your grooming routine? Or how do you find your products? Do you buy it online too? Or do you like it delivered to you? So I think if you start from that, of only working on stuff that you actually know about, it's going to make the process of interviewing and finding out questions a lot easier. Mm. So I want to pause here for a second. Is there a difference between uh, covering topics or going after markets that are problems that you're facing versus uh solutions that you know about i guess what i'm trying to ask is if you are really skilled at facebook ads and you kind of almost don't know the you're almost blind to the problems after a while right because you no longer are facing these problems as consistently versus someone that is maybe just getting started with facebook ads for the first time the problems are probably so glaring in their face so if you're someone that is looking to uh you know sell a product in teaching people how to run facebook ads for example 
Do you look for a place that you are currently facing problems or do you look for a place that you already have the solutions for? Um, I think I think it's best to um, start with the mindset of I have this problem and let me figure out who else has this problem and understand it that way. Even though you may have a solution in mind, I think having a solution in mind and trying to figure out where you can shove it is... Um, is bad because you don't listen to what people are telling you. It's almost like you're walking in a doctor's office and saying, Hey doctor, I have a, he just like shuts you up and he's like, yeah, you need this pill right here. Here you go. You're like, you're like trying to find a way to shove this down someone's throat. And that isn't as authentic as really just, you know, that's the selling process. You need to really first, before you sell by validate and with validation, the best ways to validate is really just by having an open slate. And really just focusing on hearing and listening. Once yeah. you gather all that stuff, you can go back to your thing and say, okay, well, you know, this solution I had might be a good fit. Or maybe I need to do some small tweaks. But you're going to have a much better uh, chance scaling and marketing to people when you're just listening and hearing things from their perspective versus trying to shove a preconceived like solution down someone's throat and having to convince them that they need it. Okay, so once you're on this call and you are trying to identify the problems that they have, you're writing it down, you're recording it, you're not actually presenting the promises or the products on the call that time, right? You are just collecting information, collecting data, and then going back to the lab and then going through it in a batch to understand what are the potential promises slash products to offer? Yeah, you're a really good interviewer. That's absolutely correct. You're like condensing this process into like a really concise um, interview. That's pretty good. So that's correct. You um, only interview and you, the takeaway, and this all helps into your launch. The takeaway would be like, Hey Felix, all right, thanks for your time. You know, based on what you said, maybe I will consider continuing to work on this, even though it's going to be very time consuming and financially costly. But if I do work on it, do you mind me getting back in touch with you and allowing you to be one of the first people that gets a solution? Most people say yes. And then when you come back to the second round, you say, hey, um, I heard what you said. You had a problem with this. I'm thinking I can solve your solution by creating this product with this feature. Does that sound good? If it does, you know, you told me to not drop this idea and to pick it back up. So I need you to show me some support. If you'd like to pre-order, here is your opportunity to like help me validate this thing. And um, so that works into the second reel. So the interviews... Because you don't sell them at the time and because you kind of let them know that what you're going to do is um, dictated based on their feedback, that also gives you a really good pool of audience to be your first customers to. So you don't launch to crickets. So you have people who are dependent on you now and know that um, their feedback is what's bringing this to market. So you have, once again, some of the Life Force 8 tools of like buying and reciprocity and all these things that people feel are now almost obligated support you because you're bringing something to a market that they told you they needed that would solve a problem in their lives. So that's when you do the selling. Awesome. Makes sense. Okay. So I think that that process lays it out completely from, from, from start to end. Now I'll talk about another marketing tool, the marketing strategy that you've done, which has sold multi six figures of, of, of sales for you off of a single variation of beard oil from a Facebook video that you created with an influencer. So tell us more about this. Like what, talk to us through the, this process. Like how did you get in touch, touch with an influencer to begin with? Yeah, actually through this process of interviewing. Um, and I found someone who 
was very credible and had this problem and wanted to be a part of this journey that I was going on to help solve this problem for many other people. And so um, we, and to launch the product, I wasn't really sold on being the face of the brand initially because historically I've never been. I've just been like the behind the scenes nerd. And so, um, and I, for marketing purposes, I thought it would be much better to have an influencer who had credibility talk about the product that we were launching. And so we worked together to create a very simple campaign on our iPhone and we launched it and um, we spent a lot of money on ads profitably on that. And in our first year, that video got seen um, over 22 million times and contributed to a large part of our sales. Awesome. Okay, so this was just from you networking. Like, how were you able to get in touch? I think this is the influencer that already had an influence, or just where someone that started working from with you from from scratch. Yeah, this is someone who already had an influence in. Um, the word influence, when people say it, I don't necessarily mean someone with like a million followers. This was, I can't think of at the time, but this person maybe had under 10,000. So they were a nano or a micro influencer. Influence in the sense that they were credible. So if mm-hmm. I wanted to launch a fitness program, I would, and I knew nothing about fitness or I was out of shape or whatever, an influencer could just be someone who owns a gym or someone who um, has a workout program or someone who just has a good body and is credible or has a YouTube channel, having them talk about the benefits um, or a well-known mom that, you know, in that previous example, someone that's really popular that has um, kids and has nothing to do with fitness, but they're a credible source on being a parent and a mother. So finding someone like that to really help you um, create your message, because when you're a new brand, you want people to give you a shot. And so thinking back to Life Force 8, all there are some things that are always in, um, going on in the background and credibility and social proof is one of the things that is really important um, when trying to get someone to try out a new thing for the first time. Mm, okay, so credibility and social proof. Are there any other keys to include in the video to, to that, that has led to so much success for you? Yeah, the best, the, the main two components of a great simple video is the user benefit, um, which you would only know through the long process we just talked about, and then a product demonstration video. So you want to remove all of the noise and the reasons that people in their, in their, in their heads would say, I don't need this. And if you can do that in your marketing, you're going to convert people a lot faster. You can very quickly let the person know, hey, I'm credible. I understand what you're going through. We created a product for it. These are the way that benefits your problem because we understand you. And by the way, it's not complex to use because it's different, right? It's not complex. It's very similar to other things you know. Here's how you use it. Um, so it's not, you know, you, you take away that reservation of, hey, this is different. I don't know how to use it. So you, a user benefit demonstration is always important. Okay, so we really dialed in on the messaging and the content like behind the ads themselves. I think the other critical component of this is like how do you actually target the right people? So what's your approach here to make sure that you're putting the right message in front of the right person? Yeah, that's a very good question and almost the biggest mistake that people make with ads. So you have to understand that people aren't on the same journey at the same time for your product. And so the best way to look this up is something called the upside framework and um i actually have a a free video case study that is on my site that talks about this 
I'll try to condense it in like a minute. So the upside framework is the best way of understanding where people are. From U to D, it essentially means um, from the U side, people have no idea, they're unaware. And then P, they are aware of the problem, but not that you have a solution. The S means they have, they're aware of the solution, but not that you provide the solution. And then they figure out that you're a brand that provides a solution. And then now they're looking for a deal. So someone who doesn't even know that they have a problem and doesn't even know that a solution exists for their problem is not interested in the 20% discount code. I don't care how big of a discount you give someone. If they don't know that they need that thing yet, it's never going to work. And so how you communicate with people based on where they are is the best way to do targeting. And not like they like this magazine, but more so behavior. So in a simple example of a dentist, if you have teeth pain, but you don't know that a cavity exists, and then you become aware that a cavity exists, but not that Felix the dentist could remove it, and then you become aware that Felix the dentist exists, and then he also has an office around the corner from your job, at that point, you start figuring out, well, what's the reviews like? Does he take my insurance? What, what are the appointments like? What's the cost? And so a lot of people jump the gun which is the common theme here, not, not jumping the gun in your launch, not jumping the gun in your communication and just assuming everybody knows that you exist, how your product benefits them and all that stuff. And you just go right to a deal. So you need to create ads that educate people and communicate people based on where they're at in the journey. And it sounds complex, but it's actually very simple to do. Got it. So I guess when, a, when you break it down into like what this will look like in your like Facebook ads manager, you're talking about, it sounds like there's like four or five steps. Are you just talking about like four to five different uh, campaigns that are, that are I guess, pixeling uh, their, the users at different stages that, that they've hit your website? Yeah, that's exactly it. So you could, like the simplest form, it could be three steps. So the first step could be... Um, and, you know, I actually don't use any targeting in my ads, like interest targeting. I, I never use any of that stuff, like magazines, TV shows, age, all that stuff. So um, I, I use essentially just lookalikes and um, targeting based off behavior. That's the ultimate way to figure out what people's doing. So the first bucket are just complete strangers. And the content you show them there are educational type content, like figuring out, letting them know, hey, you may be experiencing this in this back pain or your beard might be doing this here's actually why it's doing this it's this thing called this and you know and just educating them on their problem that a solution exists just real quick so you are uh, educating them in that ad itself like you're not trying to drive them to a page that's educating them like how um how much value are you offering inside the ad itself yeah so if you do a video that's why i said the ideal video would be a user benefits video where you can explain this um, but if you, you know, it just depends on where you are, your brand and stuff. It's not like a one size fits all, um, depending on how much your products cost, um, how new you are, how much social proof you have would like dictate my answer, but you can do this through a lengthy video, through a long, um, a uh, long copy ad or sending people to a blog post or having them email or do a lead generation campaign where you're getting an email and educating them through an email series. Depending on your niche, who you're selling to, and how much your product costs would determine the answer in that. Because, like, you know, a 55-year-old doesn't need to consume content like a 24-year-old. And if you're spending money on a $100 product, it's different than the education you need on a $12 product. 
Right. Okay. So the very first thing is uh, educational content. And then you said that the next uh, middle of the funnel, what kind of content, what kind of ads are you running there? So these are people who know that your problem exists. So this is really helpful to let people know that you, sorry, these are people who know a problem exists. And so uh, now you need to educate them on that you have a solution and that your solution is uniquely qualified and different to um, solve that problem for them. And then the, the idea here is to try to get people to visit your website and add products to cart and also convert, but at least add products to cart. And by them taking that action and adding it to cart, you can assume that they are aware of the problem, aware of a solution, aware that your solution exists, and is pretty interested in your solution because they've checked it out, went to your website, they've clicked on your ad, read your ad, watched your video, sorted through your website, figured the product they like, added it to cart. So they've taken like four or five steps. That's behavior that you can use to figure out that people are interested. And, um, but you know, the average website conversion is about 2%. Things happen. Their phones died. They're in work on, on the end of their lunch break. They mean to get back to it and they never do. And so the third bucket is really just the, these are where you make deals. These are people who've added it to your cart. You know, they've been educated along the whole way. They know your brand. They know the problem. They just need to know if they're going to get free shipping or if you're going to give them a discount or to get reminders that other customers are currently using and loving the product or other customers are getting results. So this is where a deal needs to be made. And so social proof or a bribe is what you kind of focus on as an offer in this bucket. Got it. And in terms of targeting, you mentioned that at first you're looking at behavior-based targeting. Uh, and then after that, it's the you're retargeting that, that the people that have added to cart or visit a site. And then you retarget people that... Um, uh, that sorry, you retarget people that have visited uh, the site is is in the second bucket, and then the last bucket is retarget people that have added to cart. Correct. Got it. Awesome. So when you say behavior based, you don't do any kind of uh, interest based targeting, only behavior based targeting, and you also mentioned lookalikes. So if someone's starting from you know scratch, they have no customer list to build lookalikes off of. What's the, what, what, what's the recommended approach there when you're just you know brand new kind of prospecting? Uh, strangers essentially yeah so the best approach that i recommend is focusing on list building um list building is definitely like uh something that a lot of people gloss over but building a list is something that you own regardless of if your social media shuts down or whatever you don't have any more money to run ads or you get in a bind, you can send an email out and generate revenue. Every single email we've ever sent since launching this brand has made money. Some has made a lot more than others, but at least some revenue. And so um, the best way to do that is by behavior. So try to, um, the first ads you should actually launch are probably ads to grow your list or to get um, as many customers as possible by a variety of different ways. Um, or people who are interested in your product. And then you would take that and turn that into a lookalike audience as quickly as possible. So if you have no customers and no list, you're completely starting from scratch. I would try to get people um, who are at least interested in your product. So creating some sort of lead magnet or some sort of offer around educating people on the solution. That way people can self-select and only opt into your lead magnet and that would tell you that, hey, everyone on this list is actually maybe interested in this problem. So 
you're working with moms, stay-at-home moms and working out, you can create a lead magnet that says, hey, um, the best workout advice for stay-at-home moms or the best gym routines for stay-at-home moms. And that way, you know, everyone on that list is a potential customer. A non-stay-at-home mom would not be interested in that offer. Got it. Makes sense. Awesome. So thanks so much, Gumal. So freshheritage.com is a website. What has been the biggest lesson that you learned last year that you are applying this year or you want to apply this year? Yeah, less is more. Um, the best way to grow is actually not by doing more, but by doing less. So cutting out some of the distractions. There's so many apps or new features and things like that. It's really easy as an entrepreneur to get shiny object syndrome. But just focus on the fundamentals. Um, focus on understanding how to market your business, how to understand your customers and give them what they need. The new shiny object's going to come and go. But if you just focus on solving a problem, serving your customers, and not getting caught up in new shiny objects, I think that has been um, really helpful for me to do more with my brand. And I think that most every entrepreneur could just need that reminder to stop chasing shiny objects and to double down on their main thing. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Kamal. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. 